Romans 1, verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reading of your holy and sacred word. And Father, we bow before you this morning, Father, and we petition that, Lord, you would be pleased to teach us and instruct us from your word. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us, that you would meet us uh, where we are, Father, for you're the only one who truly knows where we are. We ask, Father, that you would give us this day our daily bread from your word, and that you would bless it, Father, to the spiritual nourishment of our growth in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We all know that every time we touch something, we leave these things behind called fingerprints, don't we? That at the ends of our fingers, we have these little designs and, and uh, that coupled with the fact that there's, there's various oils in our skin and when we touch surfaces, we leave behind those, those little designs. And as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking, you know, there's what, six or seven billion of us on the planet right now and um, each one of us has a unique little design here on the end of our fingers don't we I mean that is really a tremendous testimony to God's creativity let's come up with six or seven billion different designs of anything and we're not allowed to use any of the ones that came before it's quite incredible isn't it when we touch something we leave behind an artifact of our singular identity, don't we? And likewise, God, when he touches a heart with his saving grace, he also leaves his fingerprints behind. He leaves his fingerprints behind. He leaves these marks. They're powerful marks. They're indelible marks, meaning they can't be erased. And they're so peculiarly his. I mean, just like our fingerprints. When we touch something, we can know that we were there because these fingerprints were there. And in the same way, when God touches our hearts with his grace, he leaves these marks behind. And we can see that he has been there as well. In our text this morning, we see three of these powerful marks that are left on the soul by God's hand. But before we get into that, just a few, just a few minutes of review. So far in our study, 
we've made a couple of discoveries that we, we want to be sure that we don't forget about. That's why I keep mentioning over and over again that in verses 1 to 7, the Apostle Paul has uh, indeed introduced two themes that are very tightly woven together. And all of us by this point should be able to, uh, to recall that these themes are uh, themes of authority and the theme of the gospel authority and the gospel. Paul is writing to the church as an apostle. And you'll recall that an apostle is one who is, who is sent bearing a message. And the message he carries comes with the very authority of the sender. And in verse 1, the apostle Paul tells us some things about his message. He says that his message is not only the gospel, but that it is God's gospel. Therefore, the authority figure that is behind the message that the Apostle Paul has come to proclaim is God himself. And as I said in the very first message, which it's hard to believe we're on the fourth message already, isn't it? We're on the, this is the fourth message in our study in Romans already. But as I said in the first message, we're not really at liberty to discard this. When in antiquity, when a messenger came carrying a message from the king, it wasn't an option for anyone. Um, and uh, this is not optional for us. Uh, the Apostle Paul is bringing us a message from the king, and we're not at liberty to discard it. And furthermore, Paul comes to us as one who has been transformed by the message that he carries. He's been transformed by the message that he carries. Perhaps one of the most persuasive things about gospel preaching is the impact that the gospel has had on the preacher himself. You know, some of you have uh, heard me mention the name George Whitfield. Uh, he's fresh in my mind because I've recently been reading some things about him, and he's regarded as one of the greatest preachers that England has ever produced. And I think in an earlier study, I, I brought to your attention that when Whitfield used to preach, sometimes to crowds of 30,000 people, he would break forth into weeping. He would literally weep out loud in the middle of his discourse. And what was, what, was, what was the source of that anguish? It was the lost condition of the souls that he was preaching to. He was so moved, so moved to bring this message to the people, to the audiences that he was preaching to. As he looked into their faces and looked into their eyes and saw their lost condition, he was literally reduced to tears. And God would use that to soften hard hearts. When people would observe the sheer intensity of Whitfield's conviction, they would listen to him. We see a level of this in Paul. If you turn just a couple of pages forward to chapter 10, chapter 10 and verse 1, just turn a couple of pages forward and you'll be right there. In chapter 10 and verse 1, we see a level of this in Paul. Paul says concerning his fellow Jews, he says, quote, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So we see a level of this uh, conviction. But if you back up to chapter 9 and verses 1 to 2, look at chapter 9 verses 1 to 2. There Paul says in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. 
I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. These are marks left on his soul by the hands of God. And what Paul says next is is absolutely incredible. No matter how many times I read verse 3, it still takes my breath away. The Apostle Paul knew a lot about heaven. He had been transported and seen a, a, a partial vision, if you will, of heaven. And you cannot learn about heaven without learning about hell. And you can't learn about hell without learning about heaven. These two things are, are uh, they're, 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 they're heads and tails of the same coin. The Apostle Paul, he understood the joy of being in Christ. He understood the horror of being apart from Christ. Nevertheless, he says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. Does that leave you gasping for air? Paul's been transformed by his message. He's got the marks of God's hands upon his soul. In our text this morning, we see no less than three marks of this transformation. There are others. I don't want to give you the impression this morning. We're only going to talk about three of them. I don't want to give you the impression that these are the only three marks. There are others. But we only have time this morning to look at three. And they are thanksgiving, longing, and serving. If you'll look with me in verse 8 of our text. We see the first one. Notice what Paul writes there. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, Paul is clearly, he's expressing, uh, um, he's expressing thanksgiving here. Uh, Notice he says the word first. Says first, and and actually, when you read that, you're kind of waiting as you read along. You're kind of waiting for a second, third, fourth. Uh, we don't get a second, do we? There is no second. He says first here that there there is a, a couple of commentators that are very profound commentators, and I love reading their books, and I and I do uh, try to take in all that they have to say because I respect their scholarship so much, but. Uh, uh, some of them have said that it's almost that perhaps Paul, Paul got so caught up in things that he forgot to say second. Uh, I, I don't take that. I don't take that interpretation. I think what we have first here is just simply what we have here. He says first. Uh, what's first? Well, the first order of business is Thanksgiving. The first thing. The the first thing that I have to do, the first thing that I must do, the the only thing that I can do, having heard about this faith, is give God thanks. Is to give God thanks. Now, why? Why Why is Paul thanking God for the church in Rome? Well, it's because he knows that faith is a gift. In our scripture text this morning, Hebrews 12, 2, It is said, it is written that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And that's one of the many, many passages of Scripture that teach us that faith is a gift from God. If if we're sitting here this morning, as I and I I trust that we all are, we're sitting here this morning united to Jesus and faith, saving faith. We're sitting here as recipients of a great gift. 
a precious gift. I can't think of any gift that would be greater than this gift. And to be united with Christ, imagine if you weren't. As I said in my pastoral prayer, imagine if we weren't. Imagine if all we had was houses and cars and careers and things of that nature. That's all we had. Things that we're going to lose. Things that are going to be taken away. Things we can't keep. How hopeless would that be? But we've received this gift. Faith is the greatest of gifts. I mean, we may have everything taken away from us. And it's always possible that that could happen. And our hearts could be throbbing and severe loss. But we have faith. And that faith unites us to Jesus, doesn't it? And he can't be taken away. And he is everything. And if I might make application of this, I think the most natural application, I mean, what is the opposite of thanksgiving? It's grumbling and complaining, isn't it? And you see how contrary grumbling and complaining, I mean, to us of all people, we have no business doing it, do we? We have no business doing it. I mean, when we grumble and complain, in essence, what we're saying is, God, you haven't been good enough to us. That's the message with, of grumbling. You just haven't been good enough to us, God. We, you know, we deserve better. Shouldn't be this way. Uh, we know better, don't we? I mean, that is absolute nonsense. When we, when we look to the cross, what do we see? God's very own Son, not withholding, dying in our place on the cross. And how can we complain when God has given us His his very own son to die in our place. How can we complain when we see that Christ is risen from the, from the dead? How can we complain when we've been given this gift of faith that unites us to Jesus in his death, taking our sins away, and unites us with Jesus in his resurrection, giving us new life in Christ Jesus? How can we, how can we complain? All I'm trying to say here is we have the brightest of futures. Our, our future is bright. If we're in Christ Jesus, is it not? And that's what we have to set our minds on. I mean, we may be hurting, we may be suffering, and there's times when the pain is almost unbearable, and some of us have gone through those experiences, haven't we? In fact, as I look around at the room, I think all of us have. But isn't it helpful to know that it's only temporary? I mean, you can endure it when you know it's not going to go on forever. You can endure that hurting when you know that it's, it's going to pass. It's soon going to be over in due time. So one of the marks of a soul that has been touched by the saving grace of God is thanksgiving. It's that disposition of thanksgiving that we see in the Apostle Paul ever since he heard of the faith of those in the church of Rome. The next mark that we see this, this morning, if you look back with me to verse 11, uh, verse 11, uh, that's chapter 1, verse 11. Paul writes, therefore, I long to see you. You see that word long there, I long to see you. And verse 13, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, and this, of course, would include sisters as well. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you. Now, Paul has heard about the church in Rome, and he longs to see them. He longs to see them. And this is another powerful mark that's left on the soul by God's hands. 
It's this mark, this disposition of longing. Now, why would I say it's so powerful? It's because, for starters, the gospel brings down the wall of hostility. If I might borrow Paul's phrase from Ephesians. What is the wall of hostility? It's racism and cultural division. That wall of uh, hostility. We live on this side of the tracks and we don't like the people on the other side of the track. And we don't like them because they don't like us. And we wouldn't like them anyways, even if they didn't, even if they did like us. We're against them. They're against us. The gospel comes and it breaks that wall down. I mean, we hear so much of rhetoric today about racism and a lot of the rhetoric. Be careful with what you're hearing. Uh, Before we ascribe anyone as a racist, check it out. Be sure that their words aren't being taken out of context. These words are, are flying all over the place today. And it's dreadful. It's happening in the media, social media. It's happening all over the place. And it's cancerous to to our society. But that having been said, racism is certainly with us, isn't it? It's one of the consequences of the fall. But the gospel breaks it down. One of the men who was used by God, one of them who was used by God, there were many others, one of the men who was used by God to lead me to Christ was an African-American man from Uh, Akron, Akron, Ohio. My skin is white. His skin is black. But he is like an angel to me. He is like an angel to me. I haven't seen him in years, but if he would walk through that door right now, both of our eyes would well up with tears and we'd embrace each other. Why? Because the wall of hostility comes down with the gospel. I actually long to see this man. I haven't seen him in a long time. I don't even know where he lives right now. But I long to see him. And that's one of the marks that's left on the soul by the hands of God. And another application of this we might make is indifference. Is indifference. I mean, you know, before I get to indifference, let me say a few more things here. Let me say a couple more things here. Paul is a Jew, right? He's a Jew. He's writing to the church of Rome, which is probably largely Gentile. And the reader of the New Testament understands that Jews and Gentiles left to their own, they don't get along so well, do they? They don't get along so well. Uh, An Orthodox Jew at this time would not enter the house of a Gentile. Gentile simply being someone who's not a Jew. They would not enter the house, nor would they sit down and have a meal together. But yet when we look at the text here, we see Paul is longing to see them again. Again, the wall of hostility has been brought down and it is so, so beautiful. But the second application I want to make of this is the, is the wall of indifference, if you will. I mean, if you look up indifference in the dictionary, you'll discover that it, it's a lack of concern and interest and sympathy. A lack of concern, interest, in sympathy. I remember a few years ago seeing on the news uh, a story about a man that was struck on the street by an oncoming car. And as the driver of the car who struck the man sped away, the people on the busy sidewalks on both sides of the street 
continued to go on like nothing ever happened. It was all on camera. It was caught on the, you know, the, 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 the cams that are on the streetlights and stuff. They had it all on, on camera. People were walking right past this man lying on the street who had just been hit by, struck by a car. And they were going on about their business like nothing had happened. That's indifference, isn't it? It's indifference. And when God touches our souls, He changes that disposition of indifference. He changes it. You know, I run into people all the time who say they believe in Christ, yet they have no interest in the church, none whatsoever. As I talk with them and try to encourage them to find a church family, I can see in their face that they they have no intentions of doing that. None whatsoever. There's complete indifference in their their minds in terms of uh, the, the people of the faith. John chapter 3, 1 John 3.14 tells us that we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. You see that, that, that verse right there, John is talking about one of the marks that's left on the soul by the hands of God. And it's this longing. It's this longing that we see in, in Romans 1 in the heart of the Apostle Paul. If if we profess to believe in Jesus, yet we have this marked indifference for the people of God, we're on shaky ground here. And I'm not saying that we cannot be believers. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we are on really shaky ground. Listen to how John, listen to how John concludes this verse. He starts out by telling us in 1 John 3, verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Then he concludes, whoever does not love abides in death. May God touch our hearts this morning and remove any indifference that that he would find there. So, so far, we've seen two distinguishing marks that are left on on the soul by the hands of God. We see thanksgiving, right? We see longing, and we we have time to look at a third one. If you look back again with me to verse 11, uh, Paul longs to come to Rome that he may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. You see that in verse 11? That he may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Now, Paul is not only thankful for the church in Rome, He not only longs to see them, but here we see he longs to serve them too, doesn't he? He longs to serve them. His desire is to go and see the congregation in Rome so that he may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Now, we don't know what kind of spiritual gift this might have been or uh, or spiritual gifts plural we we don't know the text doesn't tell us and i don't see any i don't see it to be any good purpose to stand here and try to speculate for the next 5 minutes uh, that's not i don't think that's the point i think we miss the point when we do things like that you know um, a, a pastor that i admire very very much alistair Begg, says keep the plain things the main things um what is the plain thing? Well, the plain thing here is that uh, the Apostle Paul desires to be of service to the church in Rome, doesn't he? Uh, that, that's very, very p- 
plain. He desires to serve them. If you look, you'll see the same thing again in verse 12. He longs to come to them so that they may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. You see that? Mutually encouraged by each other's faith. There's a lesson here for pastors and teachers. There's a very powerful lesson here for uh, those of us who preach and teach. And it goes like this. Don't ever get it in your head that you can't learn something from those whom you are called to preach. Now, don't be scared. I don't have that in my head. I learn things from you all the time. Uh, I know better than that. Uh, But um, if we think about it, it should only be natural. If I have the marks of God's hands on my soul of thanksgiving, longing, and serving, and I come to you who have the marks of God's hands on your soul of thanksgiving, longing, and serving, then it's, it's inevitable that this longing and thanksgiving and serving is going to be mutual, is it not? That's really encouraging, isn't it? I mean, that's really wonderful, isn't it? I mean, it's really wonderful, you know. And so many times people will say, you know, I, I, I got involved and I, I did this for the first time. And I, you know, I went out and I, you know, I, I threw out some candy at the trunk or treat thing, you know. And uh, boy, I got such a blessing out of that. You know, you hear those stories all the time, don't you? You know, where I went and stood in line and uh, passed out food at Thanksgiving time or whatever, the, the, whatever it might be. Um, we mutually encourage each other. Uh, we, we mutually serve each other. It is so beautiful uh, what God has done. Paul desires to serve them, verse 13, that he may reap some harvest among them as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. You see that little phrase, rest of the Gentiles? It's phrases like that that lead us to conclude that the church in Rome uh, was, was not exclusively Gentile in, in nature, but perhaps largely Gentile in nature. Um, But back to the point here, Paul desires to serve them that he may reap some harvest among them. Uh, In other words, Paul desires to be fruitful. Now, we might think about that. How does Paul desire to be fruitful? We could say uh, evangelism for sure. Uh, He he wants to go and uh, he he wants to be fruitful that others may come uh, to know the Lord. But uh, let's not think of, of... Fruit only in those terms and contexts. Fruit comes in lots of other packages too. They're not all apples. They're not all oranges. There's there's other kinds. There's bananas and there's there's grapes and there's all kinds of other things. One of the great fruits is growth in Christ. It's growth in Christ. You know, I'm always you know a lot of times when I bump into people, certain people always want to ask me the same question: How many people do you have in your church now? I don't count you. I don't know. At, se- at session, uh, Donald will sometimes bring an accounting and it's needful. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. It's needful and I'm thankful he does it so that I don't have to. I don't want to. You're not a number. There's nobody here who's a number. And there's a lot. There's there's growth that's taking place here that we can't measure. I don't know how to measure how you're growing in Christ, but I can see that you're doing it. Someone come up to me and say, you know, how many, how many you got now? How many? You know, how many? I don't know. We've had to we've had to buy chairs a couple of times. That's my answer. 
We've had to buy chairs twice. We're still very small, but God's doing wonderful things. I mean, what difference does it make? Are we faithful? That means everything. I'm getting a little off track here, but Paul desires to be, he desires to be fruitful. But notice what he says in, in verse 15. There's a real important lesson for us here in verse 15. He desires to serve them by preaching the gospel. By preaching the gospel. And I say there's an important lesson here because it is largely believed, and I have seen this both inside the seminary and outside the seminary, that it is largely believed that we need the gospel in order to enter into the kingdom. But then after we enter into the kingdom, then we no longer need the gospel. We graduate on to other things. This is widely believed, and it is absolute nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. And I've used verse 15 to make my case, and I've had to make my case uh, on this one, as I have uh, debated with people on this issue. And there's a lot of issues that I won't, I won't debate with. I won't bother. This is not one of them. This is not one of them. Here I will stand. The church must have the gospel. Look at the context here. Uh, Paul has heard about the faith of this congregation. It has made headlines all over the world. And Paul desires to come to them so that he can do what? Preach the gospel. And in fact, the letter that he is writing, the nature of the letter that we call uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, is an exposition of what? By, ver by the very nature uh, of the letter. In short, Paul longs to come to this believing church that he may preach the gospel to the believers there. We, this is the greatest need in our church today is the recovery of the gospel. Not some new fad. Not, we need to quit looking at the Fortune 500 companies and looking at the leadership principles that are used there and quit looking at all that stuff. And we need to get back to the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Paul would say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And in light of all of this, in light of all of this, in light of all of this, as I speak right now, there are congregations all over the place who will not hear the gospel this morning. And some of them are huge. Many of them are huge. They won't hear how the death of Christ affects them. How it can heal them. They won't hear how the resurrection of Jesus Christ can bring, in part, new life into their souls. They won't hear that. They're not going to hear that this morning. In fact, what they are going to hear is something that we may have expected to hear if we would have turned on Oprah or Dr. Phil. And I'm not saying this to be funny. I don't mean to be funny with this. I knew that when I say this, a couple of you would laugh. But I don't mean to be funny with this. In fact, when I wrote this, this is what I wrote in my notes. I said they will not hear about how the resurrection imparts new life. Unfortunately, what they will hear is not that different from what one may expect to hear from Oprah Winfrey or Dr. Phil. I am not saying this to be funny. As I write this, my eyes are wet with tears. They were wet with tears when I wrote this. Why? Because these souls are withering. All around us, they're withering. They, can't, they don't recognize gospel preaching from non-gospel preaching. You meet them out there, you talk with them, and they don't know the difference. And it's not their fault. 
It's because they don't hear the gospel. They don't hear the gospel. None of this for the Apostle Paul. None of this for Tri-State Community Church. We're prospering. I don't know if you noticed that, but we're prospering. Let me talk about how we're prospering materially first. Then we'll talk about how we're prospering spiritually. Because usually when you hear me talk about prospering, uh, it's only spiritual. You know, oh, you're going to talk about the spiritual prosperity. No, I'm going to talk about material prosperity right now. Do you realize that there's a couple who's just moved into their first house? With their first child. There are two couples in our church with children who didn't have them a few weeks ago. Some of you have got new jobs. Some of you have gotten raises at your jobs. Some of you have gotten better jobs. As we go around the room, we see that so many of us are prospering materially, but we're also prospering spiritually, aren't we? Do you know why we're prospering? It's because we have a steady diet of the gospel. We get a steady diet of the gospel. We receive a steady diet of the grace of God through Christ as we receive the gospel. And we're learning how to solve our problems in light of the gospel. We're learning how the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ can give healing and solve problems in our life, aren't we? In our text this morning, we see three of the indelible marks of God upon the soul that receives the gospel. Thanksgiving, longing, and serving. And as I move to, to close, I want to show one other thing here. Uh, these marks that God leaves behind, they're reflective of, of Christ Jesus. And let, let me explain what I mean by that. If you, if you look, and I spent some time this week looking through the the, the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, looking at the ministry of Jesus and looking for times when Jesus would thank the Father, looking for this disposition of thanksgiving from, uh, from Christ. And you find Jesus thanking the Lord for meals. You find him thanking the Lord uh, whenever he institutes the Lord's Supper, for instance. You find him thanking the Lord on one occasion he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. In other words, we find Jesus in this posture of thanksgiving. And we can only imagine that Jesus was in this posture all the time. But we also find Jesus in the posture of longing on the night that he was betrayed. This is what he told his disciples. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus longs for us. He longs to be with each one of us. That's a heartwarming truth right there. If that's all I said this morning, I think that would give us something to go home with, wouldn't it? And Jesus came to serve. That's... You know, in response, you know, at one point in the at one point in the Gospels, the disciples are jockeying for these places of honor in the kingdom. Jesus hears them talking, and in response to that, Jesus says, "The Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? But to serve and give His life as a ransom for many." Now, what what is being said here is that when when my argument is that when God touches the soul, He leaves marks behind. And what I want us to see is that these marks 
these marks, they reflect the glory of Christ, don't they? They reflect the glory of Christ. May God fill our hearts with thanksgiving this morning. May He fill us afresh. I mean, may He fill our hearts with longing for one another. You know, may He search our hearts. Let's ask Him to. Search our hearts, Lord. And anywhere where you find hostility and indifference, destroy it. Well within our hearts, search us. Get rid of the grumbling and complaining that we're prone to and fill our hearts with thanksgiving. And, you know, I I pick on these two first because as I've thought about this, you know, as we become thankful in greater degrees and as we long for each other in greater degrees, do you know what that will produce? It'll produce service. It's going to produce service. We're going to want to serve each other. Why? Because we long for each other. We love each other. We long for God and we love Him. And we're on this pilgrimage together. We're doing this together. We're, we're making our way to Bunyan Celestial City together, if you will. And thanksgiving and longing is going to produce service. So as God answers these requests, the result will be service. And it's going to be beautiful, isn't it? And it is beautiful. We'll find ourselves full of a deeper desire to serve both God and one another for His glory. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this incredible word that you've given us in Romans where the Apostle Paul gives thanks for the church in Rome. He longs to see them and be with them and his desires to serve them. And we see, Father, that these are marks that are left on our souls as you meet, as you touch us with the, the gospel of grace, with the gospel of God, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we recognize these marks, Father. And we ask, Father, that you would fan these into greater flame. We look to you, O Father, confessing indifference and hostility, confessing grumbling and complaining, confessing sins of omission when it comes to service. And we ask, Father, that you would be pleased to destroy any indifference and hostility, to destroy the grumbling. And Father, to well within our hearts, thanksgiving, longing, and service afresh. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.